The book of Genesis gets its name from the first word of the Bible in the Hebrew text. And what does the name of Genesis mean? In the beginning. The title of the book reveals the theme of the book. Genesis is a book of origins. And so we learn from Genesis the origins in chapter 1 of what? The world. Chapter 2, the origins of mankind. Chapter 3, the origins of chapters 4 through 11, the origins of the nations. And chapters 12 through 50, the origins of God's covenant people. Uh, It is said that Genesis gives us the beginning of everything except God. Because God had no beginning. And, and then the structure of the book, it's really structured thematically into two main parts, primeval history and patriarchal history. And we talked about what those things are, primeval history being the initial period of history of the world uh, or prehistory of the world. And patriarchal history is the history of one family, the history of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and how God worked through the patriarchs to bring about the nation of Israel. That's just kind of a review of what we talked about last week. Now, uh, since then, Chris has introduced me or reminded me of a a website called, I think it's the Bible Project, bibleproject.com. And they do summaries of every book of the Bible with a drawing. There's a drawing and a narration, and it's really, really good. So you can look it up, bibleproject.com, look at any book of the Bible, and tonight we're going to watch one of these. Uh, it's about seven minutes long, I think, and this is about kind of Genesis as well as zeroing in on Genesis 1 through 11. So this will be a good summary and reminder of what we talked about last week and a good introduction to what we're going to talk about tonight. Let's go ahead and watch this. Is this boarded? The first book in the Bible is a book you've probably heard of. It's called Genesis. Genesis comes from a Hebrew word. Uh, it's pronounced reshit, uh, and it just means beginning. Now, there's a lot of stories from the book of Genesis, and it's easy just to pull out a specific story and, and try to tell you what it might mean. But we think the best way to understand this book is to look at the book as a whole and show you how the whole thing is designed. The book is designed to fall into two main parts. You have uh, chapters 1 through 11, which is telling the story of God and the whole world. And then you have the second part, which is about God and Abraham's family, as chapters 12 through 50. And how the two of those parts relate, that's where you find the message of the book. Okay, so let's start back at the beginning. The first part of Genesis begins with a creation story where God creates everything. And how exactly that happens, of course, that's where all the debates come. But he takes a dark, watery, chaos and he turns it into a beautiful garden where humans can can flourish that sounds nice it does sound nice in fact seven different times god says of all that he's made that it's good and this is where we meet the first human characters in the bible adam and eve they're they're both individual characters but they're also representative adam is the hebrew word for humanity and eve is the hebrew word for life And God creates them in his image. In other words, humanity reflects or is meant to reflect the the, the creativity, the goodness and character of the creator out into the world that he's made. And they're supposed to reproduce and make cultures and neighborhoods and art and gardens and and everything else. But he gives them a, a moral choice about how they're going to go about building this world. 
And this is what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is all about. And he tells them, don't eat of the fruit of this tree or you will die. What's that all about? So up till now, God has been the one defining and providing what is good. And so God is the one with the knowledge of good and evil. But now this tree represents a choice. Will the humans trust God's definition of good and evil? Or are they going to seize the opportunity and define good and evil for themselves? And Adam and Eve eat the fruit. This is the core biblical explanation for that concept of sin, that desire to call the shots myself. It's the inward turn of the human heart to do what's good for me and my tribe, even if it's at the expense of you and, and your tribe. And the problem is humans are horrible at defining good and evil without God. And so now that humanity's made this choice, things get really, really, they're really bad. So Genesis 3 through 11 is like tracing this downward spiral of all, all humanity. So Adam and Eve, they can't trust each other anymore. And so there's a little story about how they were naked and felt fine about it beforehand, but now they feel shameful because all of a sudden Adam's definition of good and evil might be different than Eve's. And so they hide from each other. Then there's another story of temptation. Cain is jealous of his brother Abel, and he gives in and kills him. There's a story right after Cain about a guy named Lamech, and all we know about Lamech is that he accumulates wives like property, and he sings songs about how he's a more violent, vengeful person than Cain ever was, and he's proud of it. Things get so bad with the human race that we see God decide to just wipe us out. Yeah, we typically think of the flood story is about God being angry, but it actually begins with God's sadness and grief about the state of his world. And so out of his passion to preserve the goodness of his world, he washes it clean with the flood. But there's a glimmer of hope. He, he chooses Noah and his whole family, and he saves them on this boat. Yeah, don't forget about the animals. Right, and the animals. So Noah and his family are going to reboot all of humanity. I mean, he must be a pretty great guy. But this is the story most people don't know because it's kind of weird is that Noah gets off the boat and he plants a vineyard and he gets totally plastered and then something sketchy happens in his tent with his son. It's a tragic story. So from here humanity grows again but things are as bad as before and the last story is the famous story of the Tower of Babel. And in this story you have all of the nations uniting together to use this new technology they have, the brick. And they want to make a name for themselves and build this big city with a huge tower that will reach up to the gods. But God knows that this city will be a nightmare. And so in his mercy, he scatters them. And all of these stories, they're underlining the same basic idea. When humans seize autonomy from God, when they define good and evil for themselves, it results in a world of tragedy and death. And this leaves you wondering, is there any hope for humanity? Yes, yeah, there is. It's the very next story that answers that question. It's the beginning of God's mission to rescue and restore his world. All right, so last time we looked at Genesis as a whole and we looked at trying to understand what primeval history is and patriarchal history. Tonight, we want to go back and focus on those first 11 chapters of Genesis. And let's, let's try to dig in and understand better what primeval history is. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. 
Of course, primeval history is covered in the book of Genesis in chapter 1 through chapter, chapter 11. Let's read Genesis 1, 1, through, 1 and 2 again. It's really a summary statement and a declaration that God created the universe and then the detailed explanation of how God created the universe is in the rest of the chapter. But you know very well how, this, how the verse begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. A few observations about verse 1 before we get too far into this. In verse 1, would you notice that as the Bible opens up, that the Bible assumes and never argues God's existence. The Bible doesn't open up by saying, let me explain who God is, and let me explain how He got here, and let me uh, convince you that God is real. It doesn't do that. It just assumes, as you the reader It assumes God's existence. It does not argue for God's existence. And it says that this God, in the beginning, this God created. The Hebrew word there is bara, B-A-R-A, bara. It's an interesting word because it's used to describe divine activity. It is never used to describe human activity. When it says God created, it's talking about something that only God could do. Elohim bara. God Almighty created, and I told you this, alluded to this last week, the best that you and I can do is to take things and make something out of it. You can say you create something, but really you didn't create it because you just took pieces of stuff and you fashioned it, you formed it, you put it together. You can't create something, only God can create. And we used the word last week, ex nihilo, A Latin word, ex nihilo. Do you remember what that word ex nihilo means? Out of nothing. That God created out of nothing. I mean, it it would be amazing if, if, uh, if you and I could create something out of nothing, but we can't. Everything that we so-called create, it's because there was, there was something there for us to put together. Everything. Only God can create out of nothing. All right, so. Also notice in verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Would you notice in verse 1 that it refers to a dateless past? It just says, in the beginning God created. There is no statement made about when God created the universe, apart from the fact that He did so in the beginning. So, it brings up the question people have been asking for a long time, how old is the earth? Is it a young earth, or is it an old earth? Is it 6,000 years old, or is it billions of years old? Now, the problem is the planet doesn't come with a birth certificate. That gives us the date of its creation. Now, you could say we do have a birth certificate. It's in Genesis chapter 1. I get that. I understand that. I agree with that. But my point is, Genesis chapter 1 doesn't give us a day. It doesn't give us a date. It doesn't tell us when God did this. It just said that God did it in the beginning. Now, so for hundreds, thousands of years probably, mankind has been trying to discover, trying to figure out, well, how old is the earth? 
So scientists, geologists especially, have been studying this, and, and geologists study rocks from the Earth's crust, and geologists have concluded, and you can Google, Google this and find out all kinds of information, but geologists have concluded that the Earth is 4.54 billion years old based on the study of rocks. I don't, my brain is not big enough to understand how they do that or how they come up with that, that figure, but based on the study of rocks, geologists have concluded that the earth is 4.54 billion years old. I'm not saying they're right, I'm just saying this is what they say. Now, there was a man named James Usher, who was a 16th century archbishop of the Church of Ireland. He studied not the rocks, but he studied the genealogies of the Old Testament. He actually added up all the genealogies of the Old Testament, which was quite an undertaking, especially in that day. You didn't have computers to do all this stuff. He just went through the Bible and started writing down and adding up the genealogies that are in the Old Testament. And he came up with a figure. Based on his study, he concluded that the world was created on October the 23rd, 4004 B.C., Somebody else came along behind him and said, I can get even more specific than that. It wasn't October the 23rd, it was October the 4th, and it was 9 o'clock in the morning. But, lots of people do, lots of people do use Usher's date of 4004 B.C., making the world essentially 6,000 years old. The planet 6,000 years old. Lots of people... We'll use that date and that rationalization, saying, okay, if we just add up all the genealogies in the Old Testament, then we can kind of figure out how old the earth is. His theory is basically this. His theory, if you kind of summarize it, it from, from Adam to Abraham is about 2,000 years, if you add up all the genealogies. From Adam to Abraham is about 2,000 years. And we know that Abraham lived 2,000 years before Jesus. So that's 4,000. And then we've lived 2,000 years since Jesus. So that's 6,000. So that's why we would, Usher would say, he gave us the date of 4,004, but if he were alive today, he would say, well, our, our planet is about 6,000 years old. That may be right. I don't know. I do know this. I'm not sure that the genealogies were intended to be exhaustive. Not sure that the genealogies were intended to say this is every person who has ever lived in these lines of the families. And so if there are gaps in the genealogies, then that would be a problem in trying to add them up to determine the age of the earth. Here's what I've concluded. You can conclude anything you want. Here's what I've concluded. I'm okay with the idea that God has not given us a date. I really am. It doesn't bother me a bit. I had lunch with a guy recently who said, do you subscribe to the young earth theory? How old do you think the earth is? I don't know. I really don't know. Uh, and there's really no way to address that issue fully in, the, in this survey. So I don't want to get too far into that because there's, there's not a good way to address that in just a survey class. My approach is this. I don't get called up in when it was created I'm more concerned about who created it or how it was created. My concern is that we acknowledge that whenever it happened, whether it was 6,000 years ago or 4 billion years ago, my, 
main concern is that we acknowledge that whenever it happened, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, I, I do, if, I, if, if pressed on the issue, uh, I, I do just have to simply say, I don't know how old it is, but I know who made it. God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, you see, there, there have been attempts over the years, there, there have been attempts to reconcile Genesis with geology. There have been attempts to take the Bible and try to explain what science has said. And so I'm going to give you several different uh, scenarios here of possible explanations for how old the earth is. We'll just list them real quickly. There's what's called the, the day-age theory. The day-age theory. And what this theory says is simply this. The days in Genesis are not 24-hour days. They're not literal 24-hour days. Rather, they are ages or periods of time. I'm not saying that, that this is what I believe, but I'm just trying to help you understand some of the theories about creation. One of the theories is the day-age theory. that They would say we're not talking about literal 24-hour days, six little, literal 24-hour days, but but different ages that would, could cover billions of years. Then there is the gap theory, and this is one that is kind of interesting, the gap theory. The gap theory says that Genesis 1-1 is the account of the original creation. And between the first and the second verse of Genesis, there was a gap of countless ages. Let me explain it to you by reading the text. Look at the text with me again. Verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So those who subscribe to the gap theory would say, okay, it tells us in verse 1, God created the heavens and the earth. But then it says, now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. It's like, wait a minute, something happened between verse 1 and verse 2. And the theory is, because it says the earth was formless and empty, do you see that, the word was? There's a Hebrew word there that could be translated, became. Read it like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, period. Then, now the earth was or became formless and empty. In other words, God created it, created it perfectly, but then the world became destroyed. The world became formless and empty and darkness is over the surface of the deep. You see, the theory is that this is associated with the rebellion of Satan. The theory is that Satan was one of the key angels in heaven and through pride he, he rebelled against God. He was kicked out of heaven. Uh, Revelation 12 verses 7 through 9. He was cast down to earth and God judged the earth and it became without form and void, ruined. So the gap theory says that between verse 1 of Genesis and verse 2, that there, the world was ruined when Satan was cast out of heaven. And the billions of years that geologists talk about occurred during that gap. So what you have in verse 3 is basically a recreation, according to this theory. And what you have in verse 3 is God kind of cleaning up the mess 
and redoing it. Uh, reconstructing the world, if you will, he, that he had created in verse 1. Then, another theory is the revelation theory. This has nothing to do with the last book of the Bible. The revelation theory is that these are indeed six literal days of creation. Uh, I'm sorry, that these are not literal days of creation, but rather that they are days of revelation. That on day one, God revealed to Moses how he created life, and on day two, he, cre- he revealed another way that he, uh, n- the next thing that he did to create life. So they're saying in six days, God revealed to Moses the truths concerning creation. And on each of these days, he, Moses recorded down the revelation about how this earth was created. So they're saying these this is just days of revelation in Genesis, how God revealed to Moses how the earth was created. And again, so that could cover billions of years, really, uh, according to this theory. Then there is uh, the literal 24-hour, the literal 24-hour day theory that God created the heavens and the earth in six literal 24-hour days. This is the one that I subscribe to. This is the belief that I hold, that God literally, in six 24-hour days, created the heavens and the earth. Um, Let me say this. Uh, I think we should be careful trying to reconcile Genesis with geology. And I don't think we need to put our head in the sand. I don't think we need to be against science in any form or fashion. But I, I will say this. If I'm pressed to believe what science says or to believe what God says, I'm going to trust what God says. And so until God shows me something different, it appears in Genesis chapter 1 that God is talking about six literal 24-hour days. If you look at the Hebrew text, uh, the wording of the Hebrew text would 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 necessitate that you believe in six literal 24-hour days if you're going strictly by the Hebrew text. So that's where, where I land on the issue. But that, that's just for your information. It's not, you're not going uh, to need that tomorrow probably, but at least it's something that uh, you may have heard about or you may hear about in the future. Now, Let's really dig in now for a few moments. There's a clear pattern involved in God's activity of creation. And I really like the first part of Genesis 1, where God explains creation to us. Because it's in two clear, distinct sections, if you will. What we find is that when God created... I keep grabbing the wrong marker... What we find in Genesis 1 is that when God created, He first created the form, then He filled what He created. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Look in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. It says, the earth was, what's that next word? The earth was what? Formless. And, what's that next word? Empty. When you read the creation account, guess what you find? First, God creates the form. 
then he fills what he created. Let me show you what I'm talking about. On day one, verses one through five, day one, he created light. Verses three through five. Let's read it. And God said, let there be light. And by the way, here's how mighty God is. All he has to do is speak it and it is so. That's just amazing. Don't let that get past you. That it, God just has to speak it into existence. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from darkness. And God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. God commanded the light to shine and then he separated the light from the darkness. And here's what everybody wants to know. How can there be light when the sun and moon and stars were not created until day four? Sir? Did I hear someone? Yes. Good. How can there be... God said, let there be light and let the light be separated from the darkness. He, he doesn't create the sun until day four. He doesn't create the stars and the moon until day four. But you need to understand something. God is light. Look at the text with me. Uh, let's look at some other text. Uh, John chapter 1. John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Uh, verse 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word. Notice, notice this phrase. In the beginning. Just like Genesis. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. And without Him nothing was made that, that has been made. In Him was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. But the darkness has not understood it. Psalm 104, go to that scripture, Psalm 104. Psalm 104, verse 1 and 2. Praise the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. Look what it says in verse 2. He, God, wraps himself in light as with a garment. But the best one, I think, is in Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22, verse 5. There will be no more night. Talking about one day in heaven, it says there will be no more night. There will not be need. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light. They'll reign forever and ever. God will be the light of heaven. There won't be need of a sun or stars or moon in heaven. God will provide the light. He is the light. So with that context, let's go back to Genesis chapter 1 and look at the first day of creation. This idea of creating a form and then filling it. Verse 3 of chapter 1, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And, at, 
and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And it's interesting how that is worded. There was evening, and then there was morning, and then he called it the first day. That's not the way we do it. We call it morning and evening is a day. But would you notice that darkness was there first? And then he separated the darkness and and created the light? See, the reason a day was measured from evening to morning was because uh, in the beginning it was darkness and then there was light. God separated the light from the darkness and he called the light day and the darkness he called night. And that's why the light came after the darkness indicating the markers of a full day. And in the Jewish tradition, even today, they follow this pattern of night first and then day. You go to Israel, and if you're there, when the Jews observe the Shabbat, they observe the Sabbath. You know when Shabbat or when Sabbath begins? Sabbath begins on sunset of Friday evening. And it goes through sunset of Saturday. So we would say Shabbat begins on, on Saturday morning. But for the Jews, they said, no, 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 no. The day begins on the evening. Shabbat, Sabbath, begins on Friday evening rather than Saturday morning. So, I'm not careful, I'll get too caught up in all this. But so there's, there's light. What happens on the second day? What's created on day number two? Huh? The sky and the seas, verses 6 through 8. Sky and the seas, verse 6 through 8. Look at this. God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. And so the Lord made the expanse separate the water uh, from the expanse of the water above it. And it was so. And God called the expanse sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And then on the third day, day three, read that real quickly and tell me what God created on day three. Verses 9 through 13. He created dry land, dry land, and plant life. Now, watch this. Watch this up here. On day four, God has created the form on the first three days. The earth was formless and empty. On the first three days, God created the form. Light, sky and sea, dry land and plants. Then He filled what He created. Day four, He created the sun, moon and stars. So, corresponds directly. Day one corresponds directly with day four. Day five, what did he create? Sun, moon, and stars, verses 14 through 19, by the way. Day five, he created the sky animals and the sea animals. And that's verses 20 to 23. Day six, day six, he created the land animals. And man, 
That's verses uh, 24 to 31. So do you see this? Sky and seas created the, the birds and the fish. Third day created dry land and plants. And then the sixth day he created the animals and, and mankind to fill the land that he had created. And then on the seventh day, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, on the seventh day, God rested. Let me tell you one of the reasons I believe in a 24-hour, a literal 24-hour day uh, in Genesis. Because on the seventh day, God rested, and he created that as a pattern for us. That's where we get the whole concept of Sabbath, Shabbat, of day of rest. And I really believe that God did that literally a 24-hour day to lay the pattern down for us. So, man, I, I took way too much time on that. Um, let me skip a little bit and go to Genesis chapter 2 and 3. In Genesis chapter 2 and 3, if you just take your Bible and flip through the pages, when you come to Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3, they center on, of course, the fall of man. And in this story, we see sin's entrance into the world and man's fall from grace. And from that point on, from chapter 3 on, the, the rest of the Bible changes. The story changes. Genesis chapter 3 introduces the problem that's addressed in the rest of the Bible. Genesis chapter 3. Look up here at my Bible. Genesis chapter 3, right here, introduces a problem that is addressed in the rest of the Bible. The problem of sin. And it's interesting that Genesis 2 and 3 are contrasting. In chapter 2 of Genesis, it's about man's innocence, God's blessings, and God's presence in the Garden of Eden. That's Genesis chapter 2. And in Genesis chapter 3, it's about man's rebellion, God's judgment, and being banned from the Garden of Eden. What can we learn from the, from the fall? Here's what we can learn from the fall. Let me write these down real quick. Let me give them to you. Number one, humanity's fall shows us something about the nature of human sin. We have a desire to live for self and a willingness to rebel against God. We see that in the first pages of Scripture. We have a desire to live for self and a willingness to disobey God or rebel against God. Number two, humanity's fall shows us sin. I'm sorry. Humanity's fall shows sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. We don't have time to read it, but you might want to write down Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Romans 5, verses 12 through 21. Romans 5, talks. Paul uses this concept of sin entering the world through one man, through Adam, and forgiveness entering the world through one man, Jesus Christ. It's a great scripture for you to dig into. So here's what we can learn. Humanity's fall shows sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. Number three, humanity's fall answers the problem of evil in the world and the reason for injustice and tragedy. There's so much hurt in this world. Where does that come from? It comes from the entrance of sin into the world. And then finally, humanity's fall points to a future redemption through the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15. If you want to write in your Bible... Right beside Genesis 15, write this word. Let me read it to you first. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. 
He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. If you like to write in your Bible, right beside that verse, verse 15, write this word, Jesus. Because that is a reference to the one who would come to redeem mankind. It's a reference to Jesus. All right, now, I need to take a deep breath and try to make it through this. In Genesis 4 and 5, let me just start telling you a story. In Genesis 4 and 5, when Adam and Eve had children, it became apparent that their children had inherited their sin nature. Genesis 4 shows how quickly sin spread from humanity in that short time. I want you to look at the text with chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Well, let's start verse 6. Then the Lord said to Cain, this is the story of Cain and Abel, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will, not, uh, will, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. This is the first time in the Bible we see the word sin. And, the, and he uses it here to, to describe it as sin is crouching at your door. And watch this. It desires to have you and to master you. The first time something is mentioned in the Bible, it's always significant. Here, this is very significant that the Bible describes sin in these terms, in this, in, in this concept. That sin is something that is crouching at your door. Sin is personal. And sin is something that wants to control you. Sin is a power that wants to overcome you. But, we're, we're also told here that we can master it. It attacks us personally, but we can master it. Cain failed to do that, and of course he killed his brother. That sin nature that Adam and Eve began was passed down to their, to their children, and Cain killed his brother. But the chapter ends on a positive note. Verse 26, Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. And look how this chapter ends. This chapter where the first murder is introduced, this chapter where the concept of sin crouching at the door, look how this chapter ends. At that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. We've known what that's like all of our lives. We've called on the name of the Lord all of our lives. We were taught to pray when we were little. But in the early days of creation, after they saw the destructive nature of sin, after they saw the powerful nature of sin, after they witnessed that sin is not confined to Adam and Eve, but sin is passed down to their children, at that time, they began to call on the name of the Lord. After Cain and Abel, the narrative moves to describe the first human civilizations, and it goes on to describe, watch this, it goes on to describe the continued spread of sin. In chapter 5, this is the written account of Adam's line. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created male and female and blessed them. And when they were created, he called them man. 
When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived 930 years. Watch, this is underlined in red in my Bible. And then he died. The first death, natural death, recorded in Scripture. Abel died because he was murdered. But now we have Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, coming, the, the prophecy of Genesis 2, 17, becoming a reality. God said to, to Adam and Eve, in the day that you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. And it wasn't the actual day that they ate the fruit, but indeed, it did happen as God said. Natural death is introduced in the Bible. You see, Satan lied to them, didn't he? Because in Genesis chapter 3, verse 4, Satan said to, to Adam and Eve, you will not surely die. God knows that when you eat this fruit, you become like Him. You will not surely die. And so when we're reading through the book of Genesis and we come to chapter 5 and we read the line of Adam to Noah, what we begin to see is, guess what? Death was not confined to Cain and Abel. Sin nature that Adam and Eve took on was passed down to Adam and Eve, I mean to Cain and Abel, but it was passed down generation to generation to generation. And death was passed down from generation to generation to generation. Look at the text. Verse 5, Altogether Adam lived 930 years, and then he died. Verse 6, When Seth had lived 105 years, he became the father of Enosh. And after he became the father of Enosh, Seth lived 807 years. He had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Seth lived 912 years, and then he died. Verse 11, Altogether, Enosh lived 905 years, and then he died. Verse 14, Altogether, Kenan lived 910 years, and then he died. You can continue all through the chapter, and you see it over and over and over again. This is God's judgment on sin. Death is passed on through Adam's line. Then, as if it couldn't get any worse... Look how it begins in chapter 6. When men began to increase in number on the earth, and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married uh, any of them they chose. And then the Son of God said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be 120 years. And he goes on to describe how bad things have gotten. And don't come up to me afterwards and ask me to describe what all of that is. Because I don't know that anybody can fully explain it. Except it's just to show us the depth of depravity in our world. And it says in verse 8. Oh, verse 6. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind who I have created from the face of the earth men and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air for I am grieved there it is a second time I'm grieved that I have made them and then in contrast to that in verse 8 but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord 
This is the account of Noah. And so now we begin the storyline. Remember I told you to look for that phrase, this is the account of. This introduces the storyline of Noah. This is the account of Noah. He was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. I have that highlighted in my Bible. And he walked with God when nobody else was. When nobody else did that, he walked with God. Then you have the flood, this narrative of the flood, and it brings primeval history to its climax. We find out that God will not allow humanity to go into this full, uh, continue its descent, that God judges sin. And, and you know the story of Noah, you know the story of the flood, but, but here's what I want you to understand. After the flood, after the flood, it was like a recreation. When God wiped everything clean, he, he, he killed everything on the planet except for Noah and his family and the animals that were on the ark. And then all of a sudden, the, when the world was flooded, the earth, guess what? Was formless and empty. Does that sound familiar? Genesis chapter 1. The earth was formless and empty. And when the, when the water covered the, the earth, remember it says in Genesis chapter 1 that waters covered the world and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters? That's in Genesis chapter 1. Now we come in, in, in Genesis chapter 8 and 9 uh, and to the point of after the flood, guess what? God's going to recreate basically what He's done. He reestablishes the seasonal cycles. Uh, Genesis 8.22 He commands Noah and his family to multiply. Genesis 9, 1 and 7 just like He did Adam and Eve. Uh, so, so here's God starting over, and He makes a covenant never to destroy the whole earth like He did before. Look in chapter 9, verse 8. Chapter 9, verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you. We looked previously about that Abrahamic covenant. This, this is called the Noahic covenant. One of the important major covenants in the Old Testament. I'm sorry, the Abrahamic covenant is in chapter 15. Uh, I, I was thinking about the reading that I did personally. This is God's Noahic covenant, the first covenant, first major covenant of the Old Testament. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, all the wild animals, all that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you, every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I've set a rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of a covenant between me and the earth. And then after that Noahic covenant, beautiful covenant of the rainbow, let's go to chapter 10. Primeval history ends on a discouraging note. Chapter 10 and chapter 11, we find the Tower of Babel. 
The tower was likely a Mesopotamian tower known as a ziggurat. Z-I-G-G-U-R-A-T. A ziggurat. A Mesopotamian ziggurat. A Mesopotamian ziggurat had a square base, a large square base made out of bricks, and then it had sloping steps on the sides that led upwards to a shrine at the very top. This one was intended to be so large it would reach the heavens. In their mind, they were creating something that would be so magnificent it would reach the heavens. God, of course, I love the way it says this. Uh, trying to find verse five. So they're trying to build this this tower all the way up to God. And in verse five it says, "But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower." Uh, let, let me go down and see what what, what y'all are are doing down there. And as judgment for sin, God calls the people working on the tower to begin speaking different languages. And because they were speaking different languages, they started grouping up with one another and moving to different areas, and that's how they spread around the world. And that's why we have nations today, different nations that speak different languages. It comes right out of chapter 11. And they're listed there, especially in chapter 10, it's known as the table of nations. Look in chapter 10, verse 32. These are the clans of Noah's sons according to their lines of descent within their nations. From these the nations spread out over the earth after the flood. All of us are descendants of Noah through one of his three sons. All of us are. One final note in chapter 11. I want you to notice how chapter 11 ends. Chapter 11 ends by introducing us to, for the first time to a man named Abram. He was a descendant of the line of Seth, one of Noah's sons. And the story turns from the account of the scattered nations to one man who will found a new nation through whom all the nations of the world will be blessed. Now make sure you get that. In chapter 11, we, we hear in 10 and 11, we hear about the forming of nations. Chapter 11, primeval history ends this way, introducing us to one man, Abram. Through that one man, God would create a nation, Israel, that would bless all the nations. So, the next time we're together, we'll be looking at, that's primeval history we've talked about today. The next time we're together, we'll be talking about patriarchal history and how God used that one man to bless the world. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you, God, for your word. Thank you for uh, your creative power that you are so great that you can speak and it is so. You can speak and it is created. You are Lord and you are God and there is none other. Praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.